I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, my guest today spent a long career working in the law, first as a barrister and for seven years as a High Court judge, during which time he presided over several high-profile defamation cases and managed the jury list for the civil courts. Bernard Barton retired in 2021 but has maintained a keen interest in his former career. He's active in writing and researching in both the law and history and he has a special interest in proposals around changes to our defamation laws, specifically a proposal to abolish juries. He passionately believes in the role of juries in our courts. Recently he sat down with me to discuss this as well as changes he observed over the years in relations between judges and politicians and why retirees like himself could be a further use to the administration of the law today. Bernard, people would have known your long career as a High Court judge, but I suppose what people would not perhaps be aware is that you're actually a descendant of Robert Barton, one of the signatories of the treaty. Well, I'd love to claim that I was a direct descendant of Robert Barton. I did know him, but I'm not a direct descendant because Robert's two brothers and himself, they all volunteered like so many other Irish, to fight in the Great War. And his two brothers were killed in action in France. He didn't marry until very late in life. And uh, his two sisters, they never married at all. So that whole branch of the family has died out. But I, I got to know him. My grandfather was friendly with him. There's an ancestral connection, but it's way back. Um, but socially, we, we knew, he, you know, he was friendly with my grandfather. And, 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 and he was as well in just... Most people will know, but some wouldn't. Of course, he was the first cousin of Erskine Childers, who had a what? major role in the revolutionary period and then was executed Correct. in the Civil War. And an interesting feature, too, I think, from Barton's background, they were actually Unionists originally, his family. Correct. All my family were, were, were Unionists. Southern, well, Southern Unionists. And there's a big difference between Southern Unionists and Northern Unionists. big difference is that Southern Unionists favoured and supported Home Rule. Yes. Um, and and that all came out in the in the in the convention, the Constitution Convention of nineteen seventeen nineteen eighteen. So, um, uh, but obviously within union, so they, they they it's a bit like Scotland today. They supported the idea of self government, but within the United Kingdom, that was the that was basically a good encapsulation of the Southern Unionist position. So yes, and Robert Barton and Erskine Childress, they were they were staunch Unionists. Um, and so one of the interesting things is the migration. How did Robert Barton and Erskine Childers migrate from, from being staunch unionists and from that background to being revolutionaries? It's, it's an interesting it kind is, of story. Like, yeah, and, and few people made that journey all right, but it is interesting, particularly when they played such a, a central role in, yeah. in the formation of, of, um, of the state at the time. Your, your own background in... Um, Bernard, you grew up in Dublin. You're, you're from a kind of a business background. You, your your father was involved in business. Uh, yes, my grandfather was English. Both my grandfathers were English, as it happens, married to Irish women. <laughs> um, and after the First World War, they both served in the First World War. My grandfather got the idea that cars would be a, a coming thing. And so he got involved in, the, in importing cars and agricultural machinery into Ireland. Um, and so that was actually became quite a successful business. And so I grew up in that with that background. There had been lawyers in in, in England uh, in the family background, but a uh, business was the, and agriculture was his particular interest. And Robert Barton had a particular interest in developing modern agriculture in Ireland. So I think they were quite friendly. You know, they had common interests that right. way. Um, and uh, uh, I, I did go into the family business. I read law in UCD, um, when I left school, but but at the end of that, my father said, "Listen, enough learning. It's time to get into the business. It's time. It's time. It's time. It's time to go and earn a crust." And so I went into the business. But actually, I met 
that's uh, that's that was um, I think I just I hadn't quite finished university at that time, but I was doing summer work in the business, and Robert Barton called in to see my my father or my grandfather, I can't remember which. I think they might have been both there. My granddad still had an interest in the business. And uh, my father phoned over to the department where I was. He said, come over here. He said, there's somebody you'll be interested in meeting. And sure enough, it was Robert. And he asked me, he said, well, what were you doing? And I told him I was reading law. And he was delighted to hear that, you see. And then he said, well, what, what do you think you'll do with yourself? Thinking I might have said, well, I'm going to become a solicitor or a barrister, or at least one of that. And I said, well, I think I might be going into the business because, of course, my father <laughs> was in the room listening to this conversation. And he said, well... Don't give up the idea," I said, "of going to the bar." He said, "It's a, it's 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 a really interesting profession. It's a good profession," he said, and he said, "There's there's there's great satisfaction to be derived uh, as a barrister from serving other people." Robert Barton was a great man for public service, as he proved in his whole in his life. But uh, I never forgot that. And yeah. after a few years in the business, I took his advice. I went to the bar, and I I saw somewhere, and you you, you obviously you you were in the motor business, so you had your own car at that stage. But uh, your father thought uh, perhaps it might be best to give back the car if you were moving out. <laughs> well, when I was in the crisis decision, uh, having just got married, uh, will I go to the bar or will I stay in the business? The business was thriving; it was a very big business. Um, I mean, we were motor um, retailers, distributors, and importers. You know, it was a huge. It, from my perspective, as a boy, man, you know, young man in his twenties, it looked like you know <laughs> this was a serious business to be in. And there was little you know comments every now and again. This business will be yours someday. You know, sort yeah, of yeah. comments like to it. But um, the women in my life, my wife, my mother, uh, an aunt. Uh, they, they were all saying, why don't you go to the bar? Uh, you talk the hind legs off a donkey, would you not go to, <laughs> would you not go to the bar? Try, give it a try anyway. So, yeah, so the day came, I said, right, I'll do that. And uh, I went in, I was called down to the office the day I was leaving. And I knew it was my father, you know, wanted to say something to me. And the part of it was, I said, keys. So I, in those days, I think I was driving a Jaguar right. car. Uh, which was a company car and uh, the keys I thought it was a, a strange sort of request <laughs> so, so he, I took the keys out put it into his hand and he closed his hand like that and he said you know this you know you'll thank me for this and uh, I didn't feel that way I have to say as I was walking home <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was it was basically you know the bridges were now down it was an encouragement to yeah, make sure yeah, yeah. you know that, that there was no coming back to the business you leaving now you're going to the bar make the best of it pal yeah yeah <laughs> this door fit, this door shut room, yeah. I didn't uh, I didn't see that at the time but no. I was grateful for it afterwards <laughs> right i just curious on that and in your experience and you, 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 2021 you retired from your observation, would it be very different for people starting out in the bar today than it was in your time? And would it be, I suppose, in general terms, more difficult or easier? Well, it was always difficult. Yeah. I remember, I think, just to give you an example of that, I think we were the biggest intake the year I was called to the bar in 1977. There were 72 of us, I think, in the class called. It was the biggest call up until that time. And... Of that, I think, 43 came down to go into practice. And I'm saying a decade later, maybe a bit more, 15 years, there were, that I know of, 12 left. So the rate of attrition yeah. was heavy then, and it's as heavy now, yeah, that's if, not, if, if not more so, because, of course, there are a lot more people at the bar, and now you have t classes of double that, you know, coming down 150, 140, 150. There was a huge um, fallout from the bar over COVID, as you can imagine. But I mean, so I think you have to be careful about looking at, say, events like COVID and the consequences it would have on people, you know, trying to practice at the bar. If you take that out, that experience out, there was still quite, um, as a venture of the King's Inns, we would get a list of people 
every year who are wanting to disparage themselves. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people on that list. Um, people who we maybe have tried to practice six, seven, eight, nine years and and leaving because they're just not able to make it at the bar. So it's very tough. It's it very, it's very and, tough. and there is an image particularly when we see it, for example, when we see the likes of legal costs and there's so much going for counsel, et cetera, and that, there is an image that um, once you get in there, you know, it's, it's it's pretty handy and all that. You're talking about a very small minority ultimately that make it that far, I would say. Absolutely. There, there, there's no doubt, and, and the bar itself, the bar council doesn't dispute the fact that people who are a bit like the cream in a bottle of milk <laughs> that get to the top, they make very substantial incomes. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But for the vast majority of people at the bar, it's it's a it's an existence nearly. You know, they, they make a good living. But that's about as much yeah. as you could put it. And there's an awful lot of people struggling. But that's not an image people like to no. even admit. No. You were a long time on the High Court bench um, yourself and, and you spent a lot of... Um, you spent a lot of time managing the, the civil juries list for a number of years. I did. That would have given you a panoramic view, really, of what was going on in the courts and trends and that kind of thing. It did. I think it's fair to say that that the court system um, didn't keep up. It wasn't resourced proportionately to the expansion of the Irish economy. So you still had a disproportionate number of judges and courts to the to the population. And we ended up in a situation by the time I was appointed in the noughties where of all of the European countries, Ireland had the least number of judges per head of the population of any country in the European Union, including the Eastern Bloc countries. And not only were we at the bottom, we were like a whole division below right. the next country. We were so disproportionately represented. And that created, especially you can imagine, the, most people listening to this podcast will be aware of how successful the Irish economy became in the noughties uh, and before. Hey, but the court system was simply unable to, to cope with the with the demands which were put on it, huge areas of business which didn't even exist when I went into the bar. For example, family law uh, was was in its infancy when I went to the bar in nineteen seventy seven. It's a huge yeah. element in our life now. And commercial court, for example, is another you know commercial activity and commercial litigation. You became massive uh, with with the development of the Irish economy. But the courts lagged way behind in terms of, of resourcing. Now, the, the government has recently, you know, tried to address that by um, increasing the number of judges in, in each court. I think there's recently been 10 high court judges appointed now to the high court, which are badly needed. And, of course, the implication for that is that people accessing the courts, they're subjected to very long waits and, and like anybody facing into illegal action, everything that goes along with that, the stress, everything, all kind of suspended because getting access to the court. It's dreadful. It basically, it, it, it surprised me that the state wasn't sued uh, more often than it was over delays in the court system. And in fact, you know, the, the Commission and the, the European Court of Justice had indicated that there was a, there was a necessity and um, an imperative uh, on the state to provide for uh, access to justice to it for its citizens, and um, it, but, but that needs and needed resourcing, and so that's the real problem about delays and the consequences of that for litigants uh, was a lack of resourcing. That was my whole experience. Something I'm curious about myself that the uh, time we've gone down the course, so I've noticed it more, and I think it's developed very much since the economic crash in 2008, and that is the prevalence of lay litigants. Yeah. Did you see that develop over the, the latter part of your career? I did. And, how, and wh how do you think, first of all, it's handled, how does it impact on the course? Quite obviously, everybody has a right to do it should they want to. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, the real difficulty that you encountered, that I encountered myself as a judge when faced with a lay litigant, is that very often 
a lay litigant would be at sea, to put it mildly, in relation to the law. You have to recognise the right of that citizen <laughs> to present his or her case, but they would very often be looking to you to guide them on yeah. the law. Well, of course, I'm bound as a judge to be impartial. And so if there's another party in the in the case, as there would be, or be as represented, you would have to behave in such a way as to maintain the impartiality uh, and not to allow the, the other litigant in the, in the case to think that because it was a lay litigant, the lay litigant was getting an advantage in the case which he or she shouldn't have. So that was a very, that, I found that very difficult to, to it's a difficult uh, tightrope to walk, uh, to try to help, but not so much as to become an advocate yourself for, for, for the cause yeah. that they were. There were, of course, people who misused the system. Yeah. Um, so, and there are people like that in every walk. In every, walk, in every walk of life, and people got a taste for bringing cases about all sorts of I, things. Yeah, I could think of one or two, yeah, and, yeah. Yes, and there's some very well-known individuals, and, and basically um, the, the, the courts have a developed uh, a, a system of, of, I should say, maybe weeding out the genuine uh, lay litigant from somebody who is literally using this as a sort of a pastime to, yeah. air, to air their views. Which of course is not the purpose of the court. I mean, just when you were talking, it struck me it's a small bit like I don't know if you remember the during the Rugby World Cup, one of, one of Ireland's big games, where uh, Jonathan Sexton approached the referee and he said, "Hey, you're coaching the other side. You can't yes, be doing it's, that." It's it's exa- and that's what you have to try and yeah avoid. And it's it's, it's difficult at times. You yeah, know? yeah, you yeah. Say that, you know you you'd want to say something, um, and it really was necessary for the, the lay litigant to understand what it was you were trying to say to him about the law, but without the other litigant saying, hey, listen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can imagine. <laughs> what, what, what shirt are you wearing? You know, exactly. And in some areas of the law, we've seen, you know, it's developed in various ways, particularly in recent years. And if you take one example, just struck me in personal injuries, um, we've new guidelines came in there yes. a number of years ago, and a number of members of the judiciary were opposed to them. And one of the reasons, as I understand it, were opposed was they felt it would have impinged on judicial discretion. And what would your opinion be on the likes of that? Well, I need to be careful uh, um, about that, um, making comment about that, um, because there's litigation. Well, in, in, sorry, in, 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 in broadest terms, the, the concept. At the moment about that, but... Um, I think it would be no secret, um, it is no secret that I was opposed and that the, if you like, this, the High Court judges who were, if, if you like, in the firing line, they, they, they were the ones who who had to deal with the serious, very serious personal injury cases, um, that they were opposed, they were unanimously opposed to the, to the, um, to the guidelines as proposed, not to the concept of guidelines, yes. but, but to the as to the guidelines as proposed. And one of the one of the areas of opposition, one of the grounds for opposition, was undoubtedly that they were far too restrictive on judicial discretion. I mean, the whole idea of an independent judiciary is that it is independent <laughs> to administer the law in accordance with the law, and and. Uh, and th- there was an element, I suppose, about the guidelines as proposed, uh, which which restricted that, dis- which in in our view, fettered that discretion to a degree which meant that actually a judge um, might not be able to award compensation in a particular case, which the judge considered in accordance with legal principles was a fair and reasonable sum to compensate that person for the injury they suffered. And and so that that is no, they they, they did pass, but by a fairly small minority. Yeah, majority. different different opinions. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. it's so interesting. It the jury, if I could put it that way. Yeah, it's still out, it's still out on that. And just this was a separate issue that came through the judicial yes. council. Judicial council is a relatively new 
It is. Concept. A positive development? I think absolutely a positive development. Um, I, I think it, it's a bit like with the, with the new constitution when it came in in 37. There's a, there's a, there's a, it takes a time to basically say, you know, what does this really mean and, and how can we, um, you know, how far should we go in, in, in making representations? I think myself that the whole purpose of the Judicial Council, you know, it, its actual stated purpose for it, you know, was to give the judiciary a, a proper voice uh, whilst respecting the separation of powers. And I think there is a conservative, I would say, the approach of the Judicial Council is that we should maintain what was always traditionally at the position of the judiciary, that you know we do not interfere uh, or make public comments about anything which is in the sphere of the legislature. And basically, we should avoid making comments about anything which is other than the, other than legal matters. But I I think that there are pieces of legislation, for example, um, which might have an impact on the public good that the Judicial Council should consider, I think, should consider, yeah. if there's a judicial view, shall we say, on perhaps some proposal. Uh, and given the way in which the Oireachtas is now established, you know, the committees in the Oireachtas, like the Justice Committee, yeah. I think, I, I believe myself, so not, not a question of thinking, I, I actually believe myself that in important measures like that, the Oireachtas Committee on Justice, for example, would welcome uh, the view of the Judicial Council, perhaps on a proposal. But I think the Judicial Council at the moment thinks, no, this is crossing the Rubicon, maybe we should. Whereas um, I don't agree with that. I actually think, I can understand yeah, why yeah. that well, you, you'd, be, you'd be bringing expertise Correct. to the table in that respect if the if the Oireachtas was passing it. Correct. And it is simply, you're simply um, communicating a view you're not telling the, the Oireachtas what they should or shouldn't do. It's a matter entirely and exclusively for the Oireachtas to decide what piece of legislation they should or shouldn't pass. I suppose what some people might say with the opposite view is that if the Judicial Council presented a particular view and if the Oireachtas didn't go along with it, which is to, of course, be perfectly entitled to, would there be any feeling then that um, they're not going to like this? Do you know what I mean? I suppose that, that could play uh, uh, and, into and it. And that may, I don't know, I'm not privy yeah. to this, I mean, it may, because, I mean, it's a relatively new body. I mean, it only, I mean, I think the judicial guidelines were the first real sort of thing, they, and then I retired shortly after that. So um, so I, I'm, I'm sure that was, is probably one element uh, of it. But I suppose in the United Kingdom, for example, they they get a judicial view, um, you know, maybe a view of of the, certainly the senior judiciary, because of course there are law lords in the house of, in the house of lords, oh, yeah, which is yeah. which is which if you like is like the senate. So they yeah. they 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 get they get they get views that way. And we don't have a mechanism, and I actually don't see why um, the judicial council might not. Yeah, think about that. I mean, it would it it would be. It, after all, it is a body which is speaking for the judges, for the judiciary. And just I suppose in a, in a similar vein, just in terms of your experience, there would have been occasions when the Oireachtas would have been perceived as crossing that separation of powers, like without giving away any state secrets. <laughs> anecdotally, you and your colleagues, would there have been times when you might have said, "I don't know, there, you know, this this is." Impinging or patch kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Without saying so officially. That's probably uh, one of the big changes I've noticed in my own lifetime, over 50 years. I mean, if somebody in the political world criticised a judge, I mean, really had a go at a judge or basically said, you know, the judges are not fit for purpose or either one judge or a particular or group of judges, you could guarantee that the political parties across the Dáil and in the Senate, they would defend, they would basically say, hey, listen, this is trespassing on the uh, sphere of the judiciary. We don't go there. I mean, you don't say those things. So there would, if you like, the judiciary would never need to say anything because they could always rely on the political establishment to defend the judiciary. 
knowing full well that the convention was that the judiciary would say nothing. It was part of the deal, so to speak, of, of creating an independent judiciary and appointing people to um, to a judicial office with the, all the power that, that carries, that they do not say anything about legislation, about the legislative fear. It's, it's, it's if you like, a clear distinction. There's a reason for the separation of powers and um, it's essential to the health of our democracy. And part of the deal is the ju- judiciary do not say anything. But in, in the past, it was always the case that that, that position was respected and if it was broken, eh, the, the politicians themselves would defend it and say, listen, you're stepping out of line now. That's not, that's not so evident now. I think that's the big change now is that you, that, and I think that's a bit un- discomforting and disquieting, that, that you can't now rely on a unified approach by, by, by members of the Oireachtas, um, on that issue. That's interesting because I, I, I just wonder, is it one of the things that when things are going all right in that respect for so long that we take for granted? I mean, if you look at two places just strike me off the top of my head, Israel and Poland, where there are issues ongoing over impinging on the independence of the judiciary. I think actually one of your colleagues may have gone in support to, to Poland, what was going on there. And are we at a stage where we're taking that independence for granted? And as you said, the old conventions that used to be there are not uh, ad- adhere to in the, the the other arm of the of the state. Like, well, that's correct. And unfortunately, the 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 the, the lines are getting more and more blurred. And it is one of the reasons why I have taken the unusual step. Uh, although I am now retired, and I. Uh, I am, if you like, freer than I would have been had I been a serving judge. And I I totally respect the concept of the separation of powers and these conventions. But I think that our democracy is under threat. I mean, what happened last week, last Thursday? uh, The riots in Dublin. The riots in Dublin. And unfortunately, uh, there is, I, I think, in the system, there is a there's a drive for control and the elements of democracy which are so important to our democracy I believe are under attack and the most recent iteration of this is a proposal by the government well by the Minister for Justice in particular to abolish the right to trial by jury I mean trial by jury is it is the quintessence of our democracy and uh, I would say it's very difficult for people to to challenge or criticise a judgment which has been made by 12 citizens. It's much more difficult to challenge that decision than it is to, to, to challenge the decision of a judge. Are we talking about the area of defamation here? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just in that, in that particular provision. Uh, I, I think it's not, it's not commonly known that all civil wrongs, and we're not just talking about criminal offences now, but all civil wrongs in the High Court for serious civil wrongs are tribal as of right by jury. And um, the concept of jury trial is as old as the law itself. It's actually, it's actually considered to be so important it was, it was provided for in Magna Carta. So it's been part of our law for 800 years. So a proposal by the government to actually take away this right is not just stripping the citizen of his or her right to choose the mode by which a defamation action, and now at this stage it's only in defamation, it should be tried. In other words, the, the citizen has the choice, the litigant citizen has the choice. Will I have a judge or will I have a judge and a jury? So... The government want to take away that choice. That's the first thing. But the consequence of taking away the choice is that the public are removed from the administration of justice. So those who advocate for the removal of jury trial say, well, we don't need it. We just let a judge decide it. They're actually, I don't think that this is something which the public really appreciates. What they're actually saying is we don't want the public 
anymore involved in the administration of justice. Now, that is about as undemocratic a position as you can probably imagine. Okay, no, just to touch on that with you, Mern, the... the um... But that's not, sorry, this is not the first time that's happened. I mean, it, 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 it happened in 1988 when the right to trial by jury was taken away in personal injury actions. It was abolished in personal yes. injury actions. And in those days, the claims being made for the abolition of jury trial in personal injury actions in the late 19, in the late 1980s were that legal costs would go down, awards would go down, you get clear judgments from, 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 from a judge, appeals would go down, and insurance premiums would go down. Exactly the opposite happened. The legal process became longer because there were more appeals. There were more appeals because it's easier to appeal a decision of a judge than it is a jury. And uh, legal costs went up uh, with the damages. So awards went up, the cases became longer, not shorter, uh, and insurance premiums uh, followed suit. That is that. So the, the exact opposite, and the same, so the exact opposite of what was being claimed occurred, as we know, and the same claims that were made then are now being made to support the abolition of jury trial, of the right to trial by jury in defamation proceedings. They are saying the costs will go down, uh, trials will be shorter, and uh, uh, we'll, have, we'll, have, we'll have a decision of a judge altogether a better a better result. Um, the exact opposite is going to happen. Okay, and I suppose just to fill listeners in a small bit, there are major proposals to change the law on defamation. There are. Uh, and, and these include, as you mentioned, I suppose possibly the most controversial is the abolition of juries. There's also kind of elements like a simplification of the defence of fair and reasonable publication yeah. on a matter of public interest. Uh, a more media-friendly defence for an unexpected defamatory comment during a live broadcast, yes. which I yeah. think is an issue. And there are other measures to deal with kind of strategic lawsuits, I think slaps or whatever they're yes, called, exactly. that kind of thing. But, and it's just, two elements strike me about it, um, Bernard. One, it is the case, and uh, you, you made the point about personal injury, but it is the case that in the vast majority of civil litigation now, there is no jury. The defamation is the only one really left that is a matter of course. Am I wrong in that? Completely wrong. Right. Okay. Um, but, but sorry, you're you're in good company. <laughs> even even in fact, it was said. Uh, it's even been said by some members of the Supreme Court in in in, in, in recent judgments. Um, it, you know that there are only a few cases uh, in, in in which there's a right to trial by a jury. Now, actually, funny enough, uh, as the jury. The head of the civil juries division of the High Court, I was invited by the court service to write a book uh, on civil jury trial, and so uh, it's taken me two years to do that. I've just I've just finished it, and as a result of that, I I made discoveries. I made discoveries myself, which I wouldn't have been aware of at the time when I started the book, um, uh, and I had that impression myself that there were really uh, just a few. Causes of action, as they're called, which are tribal by 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 jury as of right. Uh, I was I, I discovered I was completely wrong about that, uh, and and that in fact, all civil wrongs of a serious nature are tribal as of right by 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 jury. What about in practice? And uh, in practice, the main cases, and I mean I as I say I'm. Uh, I, I headed up that list so I have a very yeah, good knowledge yeah. of it. In practice, the right is exercised. And I mean, that's the point. People, simply because people don't have a jury or don't ask for a jury, doesn't mean to say that the right can be ignored. They have a choice to make. When, when you go to serve notice of trial, the notice of trial says, do you want a jury or not? And now, many people opt opt to have a, a in a civil action a trial by judge alone which which is which is which is fine but they have the decision right they make the decision as to which they want or their solicitor does on their behalf invariably though in cases involving the fundamental rights of the citizen so each one of us has got fundamental rights guaranteed by the constitution so our right for example to to bodily integrity 
uh, our right to a good name, our right to free speech, um, our right to liberty. Uh, so where the fundamental rights of the citizen are involved, the vast majority of cases in the High Court, it, the one or other of the parties looks for a trial with a jury. Right. And I think this this is something which is really not understood, that all the fundamental rights of the citizen. So if you were, a, say, wrongfully arrested or a, a, you were prosecuted when you shouldn't have been prosecuted or you were assaulted, uh, whether by, I'm now, <laughs> by anybody, I mean, I'm not I'm talking about a, a police officer hitting you with a bat. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about any intentional wrong on the citizen, committed on the citizen. So any any assault, battery, uh, wrongful arrest. You know, I'm talking about maybe a person shopping in a shopping centre and they're taken into a room against their will because they're suspected of shoplifting. I'm not just talking about police actions. I mean, this could be... This could be this could be any private citizens or you know uh, groups of citizens, <laughs> nothing to do with with the police. But in, in any case, in all cases now involving the constitutional rights of the citizen as a person, their to their integrity, to their freedom, to their liberty, those are all triable as of right by jury. And included in those constitutional rights is the right to a good name. Yeah. So, in funny enough, if peculiarly enough, if uh, this proposal was to be proceeded with, the only constitutional right in which there wouldn't be a right to trial by jury <laughs> is for a good name. All others are still would still be tribal as a right by a jury. That's that that that. that so that, that is, is something which I think is not fully appreciated by people. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Now, can I give you a view, perhaps, in terms of where I'd be coming from is in the media, and, and I'm, I'm not speaking for anyone in the media, but this is, I, I, I would guess, one line that people within the media would have. And that is that we're talking about democracy under threat in various ways. And some people are suggesting, particularly with the evolution of the internet and that, that the, the issue of free press is under threat in various ways. And you can go all the way back to Thomas Jefferson with his famous quote, if you had a choice between a, a world in which you had newspapers and no government, or a world in which you had government or no newspapers, he would choose the former on the basis of people weren't able to talk about it, you, you're not going to enable democracy. Now, some people in the media would suggest that because for financial reasons as much as anything, because of the way things have evolved, that the concept of a free press is under threat. And following on from that, there would be suggestions that one of the issues that arises there is that the defamation laws and the views of the media are very uh, onerous. And one of the things there is the issue of when you're sued, going to court, the cost of it, and what people believe in, in the media would believe is the unpredictability of the kind of awards that can be given out and, and whether they were genuinely proportionate. And the attitude there is that having a jury in that trial makes it far more unpredictable and therefore far more costly. What would well, you say to that yes. argument? Well, I'm, I'm, well you, I'm well used to that argument. And... Uh, I would say that there is merit in uh, the argument which was obeyed 40 years ago by the media or 30 years ago by the by media proprietors mainly and then then uh, senior journalists like yourself and 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 um, ed ed editors that there was a tendency uh, of juries to give unpredictable awards. 
um, and sometimes uh, grossly disproportionate rewards. Starting, I think, with De Rossa in 1999, and going straight through past into the into 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 the into this into the last decade, um, with cases like our, uh, new, uh, independent newspapers versus versus Ireland, um, and McDonough. Uh, so there was, and I have to recognise that there was some basis for for complaint and for concern. But what has been blurred, and it's a really good example of blurring, is the recent review of the 2009 Act, which is required by the Act itself, the 2009 Defamation Act. I read with interest the submissions by the media owners uh, to the review. And what struck me about that is the cases that they were relying on, like the Russell, like independent newspapers, and Ireland, like McDonough, uh, these were all cases involving the 1961 Defamation Act, right. not the 2009 Act. So they were making submissions, perfectly valid submissions, vis-a-vis the inadequacies of the 61 Act, but that had no, no bearing at all on the 2009 Act. And... I think some of the submissions which were made and were repeated to the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Justice by the media representatives were completely disingenuous. And I'll give you a, for an example. The media representatives in written submissions to the Justice Review on the 2009 Act and repeated in the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Justice was that the European Court of Human Rights had specifically castigated Ireland in an independent newspapers versus Ireland case. And it basically said that the laws were inadequate to protect the rights of the citizen and that essentially it, it, it created a situation in which you could end up, as happened in that case, with a, with a, a massive award, which was completely disproportionate, except all of that, and um, do you know that that operated as a have a chilling effect? I think was to actually use the word a chilling effect on the freedom of speech, which is another constitutional guarantee. Now, everything about that was correct, except there was a full stop then. So when you read that part of the judgment, which was read back to the to the Oireachtas, and which was put into the but there's a full stop there. That's all that's said about the Europe. And it, what's said about it is concrete. But those observations by the European Court uh, of Human Rights were in relation to the 1961 Act, not the 2009 Act. Yes. And in the judgment, the judgment then went on to say that the court recognised the 2009 Act and the, and the provisions for safety and guaranteeing the rights of all, including the right in the 2009 Act, but there's no mention of that. Right. So I would have expected of all of the people who are interested in the fourth estate, who are interested in the protection of democracy, why was that left out? Why was that not mentioned? Why was it, why was it down to people like me to draw the attention of the Oireachtas Committee to that? I suppose you'd be well used in, in your own... In your own job, you'll be well used to people putting forward. No, no, sure. <laughs> I know, but, but this is why it's necessary to hear both sides yeah. of oh, the yeah. case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so I'm just giving that as an, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's an important example of information which is correct as far as it goes, but actually creates a completely disingenuous um, 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 conclusion unless it, unless the facts are, are laid out yeah. in front of you. And I would say there's another, to answer your question, there's another very important development, which I'm responsible for myself. I don't like saying that, but uh, until the case of Higgins versus the uh, Irish Aviation Authority. It was initially, I think, an award of this is, 10 million. This is, this is what I'm coming to. Um, in Higgins, this is a very recent case, as you know, we're, we're talking about 2019-2020. And I think for listeners to understand this, in De Rossa, the very point which is being made now by the media, uh, 
it's unpredictable. You don't know what the jury's going to do in any case. They raised the point on appeal in the Supreme Court, in De Rossa, saying that the only way to deal with this, and that the proper way to deal with this, and what's wrong here is that the judge didn't give the jury essentially guidance on what compensation they should be giving for the case. Because the judge, of course, has been listening to these cases, you know, for weeks and weeks, would be able to give them some reasonable guidance. Now, for reasons which the Supreme Court set out in De Rossa, they said, you can't do that. It's a rule of practice. To do that is to trespass on the on the preserve of the jury. Yeah. Right. The 2009 Act then comes along, and basically the law, the common that was the common law at the time. Whether you think it's right or wrong, that was the common law. It was a rule of practice that barristers and the trial judge did not actually mention figures to a jury. It's now transpired that actually what the 2009 Act did, it changed that. It, it actually said that the judge had to give the jury directions, instructions on the law in relation to everything, but every issue that the jury had to decide, but also in relation to damages. Right. And counsel were able to do the same thing. A guide of some sort. Exactly. But what it didn't say was, it didn't make it clear that what, what this meant was that the judge could go further and say to the jury, I think, ladies and gentlemen, that in all the circumstances of this case, the appropriate range of compensation in this case is between A and D. As in actual figures, when you say? In figures. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, the range of not less than this and not more than that. This is a kind of a range. But that wasn't spelt out. I think that was the intention in the bill, but, but it wasn't actually spelt out in the Act. And actually, in the Higgins case, counsel for the defendant made a submission to me and said, Judge, I think this is what Section 31 means. I, I think you actually, and I want to say that to the jury. There had been recently court of appeal. I said, well, you need to get some authority for that proposition. I mean, on what basis can I depart from De Rossa? And um, he said, well, the 2009 Act came after De Rossa and, you know, Kinsella, the Supreme Court in, in, in Kinsella has said that there seemed to be no reason why the laws that now is that the judge shouldn't tell a jury. So I I acceded to the application and I told counsel, I, I directed that counsel were at liberty to mention figures to And I, I mentioned them myself. Right. The case ended up in the Supreme Court. On its way, it went to the Court of Appeal. Now, there was no criticism, I need to tell you, about about the charge to the jury. There was no criticism about that. There were, the, the appeal was basically on the, the the level of damages. So the jury were told about figures. They told what a paraplegic could get, for example, in general damages. They were told what in other types of cases of the same as the one that they had to, the kind of awards which would be made. So they got all this information and they came up with an award of, I think, 300,000 euros. That was appealed to the, to, to the 375,000, I think, was the total award because they, there were different aspects. That case, that case came to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal took away 80% of the award. They decided the jury was completely wrong. Now, the Court of Appeal said there was absolutely nothing wrong with the judge's charge to the jury. In fact, they said my charge to the jury was a matter of... Was a model of clarity. That's how they described it. But they still took away 80%. Now, here's a worrying, I think it's a genuinely worrying uh, matter. The report on the 2009, the review of the 2009 Act, on which the current proposal is based to abolish the retry, relies heavily on the result of the decision in Higgins, in the Court of Appeal. It points to the fact that in Higgins, 80% of the award was taken away, and it, it relies on the Court of Appeal decision as a basis for the proposition to abolish the right to trial by jury, as an example of how bonkers a jury can be. What, of course, it doesn't tell you is what happened in the Supreme Court. And the decision in the Supreme Court 
was hand, uh, handed down a month after the publication of the report. Right. And the so decision it didn't take account of that, that exactly. the report obviously. And what happened in the in the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court reversed, unanimously reversed the Court of Appeal as being wholly wrong. Right. So we now have a proposal being considered by the government on the basis of a of a of a that no longer exists, completely being re- reversed by the Supreme Court. And what the what the Supreme Court decided to do was they decided that the approach we had taken was correct, but that they they would actually themselves set out for all future defamation actions to deal with these complaints, fair complaints by the media. From now on, the jury are going to be directed by a judge on the appropriate level of compens levels. So in other words, they're going to be given parameters, guidance. Yeah. And that will answer this business about proportionality yeah. and about uh, consistency. So that's, from now on, that's the law. It's already the law. But this has not been considered at all by the government because it came, this change in the law, momentous change, came after the report. That's in, that's, that's which is a very important thing. It's yeah. never mentioned at all in any media group. So no. when the media <laughs> are commenting on this in any paper, no one talks about Higgins. Right. Because to talk about Higgins is actually the answer to, to, the, to the otherwise legitimate complaints made by the media. And this, I would say, to top all this off, is that the Oireachtas Committee, recognising this, wanting to have a democratic input through the decision of the jury as to whether or not somebody has or hasn't been defamed, have decided that from now on, while the jury would be able to give an indicative award on the basis of, of the guidelines in Higgins, the final decision will be down to the judge. So the very thing that the media have been looking for, a judge will decide the level of compensation in every defamation case if that proposal is put into law. But instead, So instead of abolishing juries altogether, judges will now decide at the end of the case the amount of the compensation. So are we talking really like just to make a comparison may not be totally appropriate but in, in, in the criminal courts uh, a jury decides on the facts the judge decides on the Correct. sentence. Are if we saying here if, if, the jury will decide on the facts the judge will decide on, on the amount in the event of uh, The, the jury will be allowed like in a lot of United States for example and in Canada and some Commonwealth countries the jury can say what they think should happen. They should say well we think they can actually recommend they think it's up to you, Judge, as to what sentence you will, but we actually think, you know, we should get the electric chair or whatever. Do you know, yeah, yeah. They're entitled to, to give an indicative view. I'm with you. And from now on, the jury, that's if the Oireachtas Joint Committee proposal is enacted. The jury will be entitled to give an indicative award. They say, we think X is fair, but it's been made clear in the proposed legislation that the judge... Uh, it, will, it will not be bound by that, and uh, that the judge can depart from that and can give the award. But if he does that or she does that, they have to give reasons as to why they're depart- departing from the view of the jury. Right. So I, th- I think it's unlikely, myself, that there will be much departure because if the judge has instructed the jury properly on the parameters and the jury decide to make an award in those parameters which he or she has given them, on what basis then is the judge going to dis- disagree with that? But you could see a situation where if the jury decide to disagree with that and go into a much higher level or a lower level, the judge could say, well, look, I don't think there's any basis for the jury to depart from the guidelines I've given them. But could, could you have a scenario that if a jury does that and departs from the guidelines, that the judge, when it comes forward, the judge ultimately says, well, fair enough, they departed, that, that's their decision. Is, is that possible? Uh, absolutely. The judge could say, well, that's their decision, but the law is clear. I'm not bound by their decision. And in my view, they shouldn't have departed from the... That he, and he or she... No, but sorry, my, my, my question is, if they do depart, can the judge say, well, okay, they departed, that's their decision, I'll go along with that? It, the judge could do that. But he, it's unlikely, I suppose. But it's highly unlikely. I think if he, has, if he or she has said, uh, you see, the Supreme Court of indicated that they feel that the trial judge should have a discussion with counsel yeah. on both sides before 
the jury is charged at all and have a discussion with them, get their views as to what, well, what parameters, gentlemen, do you, or ladies and gentlemen, do you think this case falls in? If the jury come to the question of damages, where do you say? Yeah. So that's a discussion which takes place between a trial judge and uh, the, the lawyers uh, in open court in relation to the issue paper as to what questions the jury are to be asked. So as part of that conversation, the Supreme Court is now saying you have a discussion about the level of damages if that if the jury come to decide that. So the trial judge will know when he or she is giving the jury parameters yes. within which uh, pretty well what the views of counsel are as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Do you know? Yeah, yeah. So the chances, I think, of, yeah, and, and also the parameters are a bit wider than right. they would be. That They're much wider. They're a good example of what they... The, the personal injury guidelines are not. There's a there there's a wider right. Uh, uh, there are wider parameters. There's there's a proper area for discretion. And in, in other words, it's not not too restrictive, not too politics. Uh, the act of the possible. Like, the, I know. And so what, so what I'm saying is, I personally feel that this should be tried. That we, we should try this. And I think, in particular, jury. Just going back to the point of democracy. Um. If you think about it, the only wrong if you're for if you're wrongfully arrested or you're wrongfully imprisoned, uh, for example, uh, or somebody assaults you, you were unfortunate enough to be assaulted by somebody on Thursday night when you were going about your business in Dublin and some thug attacked you and assaulted you. In the case of your good name. And only in the case of your good name, if you think about it, the right to free speech is what Mick Clifford is saying, or Bernard Barton yeah. might be saying, is free to say. But in the case of your good name, the injury is done in the public. It's it's the publication it's of the, the defamation the public, to yeah. other people. Yeah. So the, it's the injury to your reputation amongst members of the public that creates the wrong. So who better than the members of the public themselves to decide whether or not you have been defamed? This I mean that's the so yeah the analogy with crime is is this provision in the, uh, recommended by the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Justice is pretty well approximate to that. It's saying the jury will decide whether or not there has been a defamation, or whether there is a proper defence or not, but the judge will ultimately decide the amount of the award, and that I would have thought was a perfect compromise. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it should be given a try. If it doesn't work, we can change it. But, I mean, it should be given a try. I think the problem is now is that the opposition are all lining up to take on the government on this. And so we're going to have a debate in due course. If this bill is introduced next year with this provision in it, you'll have a, you'll have a row in the Oireachtas. And the row will be, are you for or against the right to trial by jury? Instead of where we should be, and this is going back to a question you asked yourself, there are very important provisions for the change in the law on defamation, which are now being considered in the proposed legislation, which are going to get, it, which, are, which, 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 which are, the focus is not going, to, it's a distract, this business about the coverage is a distraction from very important changes which need to be made. And I think I need to say to you in, in, in answer to the question about, about about that, is that I welcome, as somebody who tried some of the most notable uh, defamation actions uh, in the last decade, I was the presiding judge. And I can say to you, including a case involving RTE, uh, I can actually say to you that the provision, the proposal to simplify the Section 26 defence, that is the defence of fair and reasonable uh, reporting, yeah. essentially jur reasonable journalistic reporting on a matter of public interest, that that defence should, in my view, be a go-to defence. So the simplification of that defence, in my view, will remove the chill factor that the media are always talking about. It needs to be changed. It's a very important change. I, I completely agree with it. From my own experience, What's there at the moment is too complicated. Right. It's even complicated for a judge, you know. Right. I understand, and having listened to Michael McDougall in, in the Justice Committee talking about that, and he was the minister 
Minister of Justice well, and Attorney General. General at the time. You know, they were trying to it was a catch all. They were they were trying to take account of every possible scenario. And in doing that, they they unintentionally overcomplicated it. And uh, he himself um, was clear that it needed to be simplified. So I think that a concern that the media have uh, for uh, the the right of free free speech, especially in the digital area, and it's a genuine concern. But the two particular areas you've highlighted yourself, this idea that which happened, of course, in the Kill versus RTE case, where a panel member made comments of a highly defamatory nature, and it, literally in an instant during a... Well, if what has now been proposed is enacted, you know, RTE will be protected yeah. in this scenario, or Mick Difford in, in an interview is going to be protected. Do, do you follow? I, do. I mean, that's the whole idea, and, and the simplification of the Section 26, which is... Is, is it's probably the most important, I would have thought, a change that can be brought about. And I would have said the media's artillery should be pointed at that and not like Don Quixote right. at windmills right. on jury trial. Do, these are the changes which need to be brought about. And um, and I, I think there will be, I, I don't know from, I, I've, I've no reason to believe that my view on this is not shared by my colleagues. Very good, very good. You know. Can I ask you, finally, Bernard, you're, you're quite obviously still very active of mind and body well into your retirement. You're involved in, in compiling a fine fine book, uh, The Men and Women of the Anglo-Irish Treaty Delegation 1921. Um, and you're, as you say, you're still actively involved. Judges have to retire at 70. Um, would you see a scenario whereby they should be allowed to serve longer or that they, they, they could move into another role within the judiciary in some form or another at that stage? Well, fortunately, I, you know, the, the, the grey matter is still, still functioning. But that's the still, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it's something I would personally love to be able to do. I know colleagues, retired colleagues, said, that's it, they were, they were glad. Let me out the door. Was, yeah, <laughs> and, and they've gone off to play golf or sail or whatever, or whatever it is that they do, gardening, eh, or whatever their activities are, and they're just finished. And they accept that that's, they accepted that the day they were appointed, that when they finished, that would be it. And they, that would be the, it's an interesting question, because earlier on in this interview, we we talked about the uh, terrible um, restrictions on the capacity of the courts to, to deal with the with with the the huge uh, backlog of work that was building up, mainly because shortage of resources in Northern Ireland and in the rest of the UK. You can come back. Right. I didn't know so that. so basically. If you're if you're now provided you're physically up, I think until seventy five. I mean, I think seventy five. But as far as I know, seventy five is the, is the definitely is the shut off point. But between seventy and seventy five, you can certainly serve. A uh, and and so even if you have retired, I think you have to retire at seventy. And and um, but um, for example, the jury list. Um, sometimes finds itself, as I found myself, without a second judge. You need to have a second judge, at least, to, to, to move the list along um, in order to get the business done. If there was a shortage, and the president of the High Court found himself, you know, short a judge, he could ring me up. If, if, if this was the North yeah, of Ireland, yeah. he could ring me up and says, could you give me a hand? Could you, could you come and sit in the jury sessions this term or next term or whatever? And that happens regularly in Northern Ireland. I've met judges up there who are like this. They are, they come back from retirement and they're essentially under licence. So although they are retired, th there's a specific legal provision which means that the orders that they make are as, it, as if they were still a fully serving judge. So there's no constitutional infirmity, if you like, with the orders that they make while they're sitting. But of course, their their power to make court orders or here exists only for so long as they are actually sitting 
in, in, in a court at the invitation, I think, of the, the Lady Chief Justice, as it happens in Northern Ireland. But this happens all the time in England, and it's a, it's a huge valve, so to speak, oh, yeah. for letting off. And it also means that people, I mean, I think of some of the finest brains, uh, legal brains, uh, from the Supreme Court recently, now recent retirements, and they're not from the Supreme Court in the Court of Appeal. They're gone. They're lost. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I think, um, you know, Justin McCarthy, your own colleague in the Irish Times, who interviewed my colleague, Deirdre Murphy, you know, uh, Justine herself said it in a very interesting article, interview, they said that, you know, uh, why should the state be, be deprived of the knowledge and expertise of these of these people because of a convention that they should say nothing? I have to say, Justine's article encouraged me to, to get involved. <laughs> good stuff, good in stuff. This, in this particular debate. Listen, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, Bernard Barron, thank you very much for talking to us today. You're very welcome. That's it for today, folks. Hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly found it very illuminating, I have to say myself. As always, I want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Be well. We'll talk to you soon.